Hello, everyone, and welcome to the cast of Call, where we talk about all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, who is currently imbibing some delicious apple brandy, the one and only DJ. Ah, well, that apple brandy is mixed with a a hot tea blend of peach tea, so Mm. I am basically drinking liquid peach cobbler. It is a delicious cold-weather beverage, although I say cold, then it's like 45 here, so not horrible. (laughs) See, that sounds so cold to me, but I'm used to that being, like, that is winter cold. Where you're from, that ain't, that's like, you know spring <laughs> so our mammals have become like wimps when we lived in in the hot climate <laughs> of redding in the old days like they would go out and be minus degrees and there would be snow on the ground and they would just put their snow boots on and, and be fine and now wait, wait, like your dogs had snow boots yeah well, we have little little <laughs> snow boots for the dogs oh so that God. their paws don't freeze um and now we have to take them to i have to drive them to the park because if i walk them to the park in their stroller they will be too cold by the time they get there to enjoy their play (laughs) oh Oh, that's so cute but i totally understand as someone i'm so soft and so unprepared for climate change (laughs) and so as the weather is changing this delicate snowflake is melting It's not good. Uh, But fortunately, we got some rain today. Nobody cares about the weather, though. So (laughs) let's talk about what we're going to do for this episode. Uh, Okay, what's on the the plate? All right. So we're going to kick off our episode with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass, Part 2, Susan, Chapter 10, the last chapter in this section, Bird and Bear and Hare and Fish. And then we'll close out the show with some, or there are some, a few future plans as well as some fun listener feedback from the Facebook group. So I think it'll be a fun full show this week. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of naked time in this. It's going to be a very one. sexy show. <laughs> That's a lot of sure. flicking nipples and them yeah. raising to the occasion. Yes, yes, yes. Between this and Cyberpunk 2077 coming out this week. It's been a lot of naked people in the. <laughs> is that, so I got to ask before we move on, like you've you've played it, like it looks beautiful from the screen uh-huh. shots and uh, like trailers I've seen. Yeah, but is it any good? Is it like worth getting? I I'm not that far into it yet, but if you if you like that type of game, like these sort of RPGs, and if you like cyber, cyberpunk, which I know you do, I yeah. think there's a lot here for you to enjoy. I mean, did you play any of like The Witcher or anything like that? No, I'm not a w- Witcher guy. That's too okay. much work. <laughs> I mean, this thing is it's a huge world with lots of things to do. You can play as multiple different characters. It's definitely something you could get lost in. So if that, if you want something that is just sort of like linear, I don't, I don't know how you would feel about this. Cause this is, this is an open world game. And Ooh, I've, uh, I've abandoned many open world games because yeah. they weren't on the rails enough for me to know where to go. Right. Or you get that like I mean, thing, thing where you have to cross the entire world. This thing definitely feeds you where to go and what to do. It's just you have a lot of options of what you like, what order you want to do it in. Ah, uh, okay, okay. But you do have to spend some time at the beginning of the game selecting your genitals. So just so you know that <laughs> <laughs> there are a variety of pubic hairs with which to choose. I mean, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Wow. Um, but okay. it's just very in keeping with uh, all of the media that I've been enjoying this week with our very sexy chapter we'll be covering tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into it, which I'm phrasing, DJ, can you remind our listeners of what our spoiler policy is? Like a lovely flower exposing oh, itself no, onto no. the... 
onto the soft moss of the creek. We will draw a line in that creek water, letting you know when we are about to cross into the spoiler zone. Oh, God. I can't believe I used that one. <laughs> I blame the bottom of the, the branding at the bottom of that cup. <laughs> oh, man. Stephen King's descriptions of, like, young love are just super, like, weird and, and sort of, like, uncomfortably cringy, like your dad explaining it to Yeah. You. Like, let this me tell you something romantic. A little bit better than, like, the weird grabby grabby that, you know... Eddie and Suzanne are always doing, but mm-hmm. this one's much more flowery, but it's still kind of like, you know, Stephen King does really great writing around horror. <laughs> <laughs> Less comfortable writing around the sexy stuff, but we'll get into it. We'll get into it. So no new iTunes review this week, but if people are enjoying the show, go on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review on the air, let us know what, that you love the show or whatever, and we'll read it on the show. All right. Let's get into this. DJ, where did we leave off? So from the the Susan and Roland perspective, we left off with them kind of discovering these tankers that have been pulled off into the into the uh, forest. And then from the uh, uh, the big coffin hunters, we leave off with the perspective of the discovery of all of the information needed for mm-hmm. Roland and the gang and the old man dying. As he rides back out and towards town to explain to the rest of the gang what these kids are all about. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So, I mean, surely things are about to go crazy. Tweep's going to rush right back and tell everybody when he knows, right? <laughs> I mean, mm. yeah, pro- probably. Like, Except uh, for this opens up with it's two weeks later and nothing's happened. Well, yeah, but okay. <laughs> so the thing is with the two weeks later, like – how far did he have to ride and how long? Well, I mean, it's two weeks later from when Roland saw him ride into town. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. pick that up. Okay. So, all right. Well, then, well, okay. I have a theory on that then as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I'll underline it later when we get to like around uh, uh, section eight or nine of this. Okay. All right. Because, Sounds good. But remind me because I might forget it. Okay. It has something to do with, uh, well, hell, might as well mention it now so I don't forget. So uh, in a future area when um, what's-his-name is hitting on her aunt. uh, Jonas and Cordelia? Yeah. Now he's suddenly been deputized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to talk about that for sure. I want to know what you think that's about. That's in my notes here to be like, what do you think Jonas is up to? Oh, yeah. And I don't want to go too far into that. Yeah. So far ahead. But like, that's the part that I think links back to the thing. Yeah. Just talking about. Okay, good. Because I I mean, I definitely have some thoughts about it. But I was kind of like, feel like there's more to this and so i was planning on asking you anyway so i'm glad to know that you're already on the same page with me yeah there's a couple little um snags like this is a a fairly thin chapter as far as content goes but there are some like heavy snags where you're like whoa what about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally, totally um okay so right, we let's get into it we catch up with a uh, uh, susan and like it's two weeks later after the they've met and they see each other casually and like running errands and kind of like halfway wave and and Susan's sort of like in this sort of slump about how you know she was worried at first that the town might be gossiping about her and Roland and then like now there is no gossip and one part of her makes her feel like 
happy about that, but also hurt at the same time. And then she's also sort of like hoping that Roland feels as hurt as she does about this mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it's like this mean spirited um girl punching a guy in the in the um Oh, see I took it more like, you know, he ho- she hopes he's suffering too because it means that he cares. Oh, so you think it's like an absence of love like I'm suffering so much because you're not with me, and like I hope you're yeah. suffering just as much as it's I. It's like when you break up with someone, and you're like, I really hope they're hurting too, because you know that means they cared. If they don't, if they didn't, if they don't hurt, then they never cared. <laughs> you better be crying and listen to "There Ain't No Sunshine" when she's gone, dude. Your, on repeat or GTFO. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, we cut to Susan, like, back at her house, and like, there's a knock on the door. And you have two stars here, and I've already pretty much summarized this section. Do you want? Is, did I miss anything? Just really quickly, I mean, I think it's important that we've been in this whole section that's called Susan, and this chapter starts with this is the most important day of her life. So this is essentially what we have been building to throughout this entire chapter, right? Mm-hmm. This entire section. Wow, wow. Yes, right. And so, and it's <laughs> on the day. Between the passing of the Peddler's Moon and the rise of the Huntress Moon. Uh, and, and she describes it as, or it's described as the day that Ka finally came and blew her away. House and barn and all. Which, first of all, our first wind metaphor of the section. Um, it's also very um, Wizard of Oz, which is, like, we've been talking a lot about Romeo and Juliet. But Wizard of Oz also has a pretty big reference point in this. With all the stuff that's happening, particularly in present day with Roland and Eddie and Susanna. But yeah, I mean, right away, I was just kind of like, yep, we're the holding off has finally end. We're finally going to get some action. So that I think is of a note. And also, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's been two weeks since DePape came back bringing the news about Roland. And they're just sitting, clearly sitting on the information. So it's just another example of how this book is very much like its subtitle could be hurry up and wait. There's always like all the, oh, here we are. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, wait. Hold, hold. So moving on, uh, there's a knock at the door and it's uh, Maria. And uh, apparently Maria is like this sort of like um, uh, exaggerative, uh, over-enthusiastic, like flamboyant girl that has special like kind of silly things. Like she likes people to call her mom instead of, you know. uh, No, she calls Susan mom. Yeah, she calls Susan mom. I'm sorry. And and so like she's basically like – tells a dramatic story about how she could be sent away because the dress was damaged and so on. And like, you need to come with me right away. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to be like kind of an overblown story. Yeah. Uh, the dress itself is not one of the more important dresses. It's like an easy to fix problem. There's a couple of holes in it and like a, a little damaged section. And for some reason it, it was blamed on, you know, um, maybe an, an animal getting in, but when they start talking, it turns out the room smelled like dog farts and they <laughs> believe that a dog <laughs> got into the room actually and chewed on it. And and then Maria kind of has this like um, just between you and me thing that the other maids often come up here and eat their food and forget to close the door and leave their crumbs all over the place. Yeah. And it's like – it's a little like scandal that's not really a scandal, mm-hmm. but like the type of almost um, gab you would get from like senior citizens, elderly ladies 
old Mabel over there, she never picks up her newspaper until it's all soaking wet. Did you see that? It's like that sort of thing. <laughs> it feels it feels kind of fun. That's but, interesting because I kind of it made me think of like they're giggling about the dog farts reminded me that I feel like so much of what we're getting with Susan is this very serious heavy stuff and her laughing with Maria about the dog farts is a reminder of like she is ultimately just like a teenager and she's having these inter- we're seeing her interact with another teenager and you know it's it's kind of cute and funny but also at the same time what is about to happen is like <laughs> even more creepy because it sort of juxtaposes this like sort of useful silliness with major creep creepazoid action. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's it. Okay. So like uh, when we cut from this scene to the next scene, which I'll just do now anyway, uh, uh, Susan's not laughing. No. <laughs> and, and so no. like you kind of, it's sort of this like, uh, movie thing they do y- you've seen like shots of this where it's like here's a happy time and then like now i'm depressed and it's raining and you're at the window so S- susan's back at her house and she is not happy um she's got like a flush face uh cordelia sees her through the window and it reminds her of her father and when he was in high distress he would go pale and have kind of like a rosy cheeks and his hair would flail in a certain manner that was easily spottable and Mm -hmm. susan has the same look and aunt cord kind of has this internal like uh freak out for a second (laughs) that like this may cost her chances to get her money and get this girl like i believe the term she uses is i can't wait till i'm seeing the back of you (laughs) yes which is it's super harsh Cordelia sees these obvious signs of distress in her niece, and all she can think about at this point is, is like, whether or not the deal has been messed up. You know, she's instantly worried and instantly furious at the thought of it. There's no moment where she, like, takes any pause to have any sympathy for her. Like you said, she just wants her gone and for the deal to be done. Yeah. And and so uh, uh, Cordelia, like, kind of has, like, this flash of emotions, and then she sort of buries it all. And Susan comes into the house and (laughs) Cordelia starts to like ask her kind of leading questions. Mm -hmm. And, and she wants to know basically like, did you already give up your virginity to him? You know, what's going on here? And, and she's like, well, no, yes, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then like, she sort of like throws this tantrum and like the internal dialogue from Susan is like, I want to fly at her and claw her eyes out. Mm-hmm. same Susan same Aunt Cordelia like gets her to spill the beans basically and she's like his you know crackling hands grabbed my breast and his like old gross beard his billy goat chin was up against me Ugh. and like and then this is where we find out like Aunt, I didn't realize that Aunt Cord was a virgin oh yeah she's a spinster but yeah. I mean if you're a spinster does that make you a virgin as well no, but I think it is the crux of a lot of the resentment that is between them is that she's like this dried up old Spencer that nobody wants to bang versus Susan, who is this beautiful young in her prime or oh, coming okay, into okay. her prime kind of de- uh, object of desire. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't quite picking that up, but I did pick up the point where like her, her aunt's like, you like to throw this at me all the time. I've had my flings once or twice and. You know, uh, so-and-so put his hard parts up against my back more than once and up against my front side, too. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay I, okay, I guess that's sort of the same Aunt Cord. And, 
like you know it's nothing uh dry humping is just a thing that happens there's no shame in it you know <laughs> and susan like is is pissed and basically storms off and well and then uh, she rides off into the distance there are a handful of things i think we definitely need to touch on here like i totally get the desire not to go into detail about the grody dry humping that occurs in this scene but there are a couple things we gotta kind of i think get back into it i'm not gonna go into all the the blow by blow as it were but one thing stepping back even a slightly further is when we hear about the story about the dog the maids use this room to like go have snacks because it's the coolest part of the house and then sometimes they forget and the crumbs are there to tempt them and tempt the dog and the dog got in and the dog did what a dog does it took what it wanted and then when it was unsatisfied it ended up also tearing up the dress and i think you know, it's a funny story because it ends with dog farts and who doesn't love a story about dog farts? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also think that there is a similarity here, a parallel here to what essentially ends up happening in the room with Susan, right? So she goes in, she's left on her own and he, someone leaves the door open and he manages to come in and find the source of his temptation. Well, it does make, okay, so, uh, and I probably, this is my bad. I should have explained this whole scene instead of just brushing past it. So... Uh, she gets down there. The lady tells her to undress, then leaves. Then he comes in. Yeah. And the pretense to the story is that the dog got in there. Well, how did the dog get in there? Well, they blame the maids. But really, uh, I think it was Thorin purposefully leaving the door ajar so, oh, uh, and probably leading his dog in there and then leaving the opportunity. Because, like, that's uh, she, I hadn't she, gone there. So there's there's two there's three things actually in this section and and it's my bad for going so fast. Um, first, when she gets down to that room, Stephen King specifically notes that it's by the tower, mm. and so you can see the tower out the window. Mm. So I don't know what tower is. I mean, is not in the this town, tower, but like they mentioned the tower, so like that's foreshadowing right there, mm-hmm. like a a dark tower shadowing over you as you're in this room. And then she, in her internal dialogue, is like, oh, she shouldn't have to do anything really to this dress. It's like minor fixes. And the lady's like, no, no, take it all off. All your clothes off now. And like, so that's the next setup. And then she, the the lady that has her take her clothes off already knows that Susan sort of like daydreams so she can not pay attention to the fact that you think the seamstress was in on this? Yes, yes, I do. Oh, And then she's like, oh, I got to go get some stuff. And leaves. And then Thorin mm. comes in. And, like, she's dreaming about Roland. And, like, he reaches up and and uh, touches her bits. And, like, rubs up against her backside for a little while. And Oof. the thing is, is, like, so the description of, of Thorin in this position and doing this is, like, a bucket with a hole in it that will never get filled. Now, that's not the part I want to underline. I just wanted to mention that. But... Then when he, like, steps away, he's almost, like, zombified for a second. Mm -hmm. And and so one of the questions I wanted to throw to you on this is, like, we've already got the theme of hypnosis going on. Yeah. And then the orb going on Uh and sort of a thicker plot altogether going on. Uh And then we have his wife who actually loved him, which means at some point they were good together. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible that maybe – his lust for Susan is like programmed by somebody in order mm. to play a good game of castles. I don't know. Is that going too deep? I think that look of, um, or is that just shock from like look? doing something horrible that you know is wrong? And then, well, like... I think the, the, 
the sort of key here is that Cord- Cordelia has the same look when Susan gives her the message, right? Or tells her the story. And I think what you're sensing with him is like basically a total lack of empathy for her. He's completely checked out. He's so focused oh, on Oh, like his she's own an needs. object only and not yes. a person? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, that and would it's make how more sense. You're able to do terrible things and still feel like you're the good guy. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of a reoccurring theme in these books, right? Is how people with good intentions or believe who believe themselves to be in the right are doing bad things. And I think one of the ways you do that is sort of to disassociate. And I think that's, that's how Cordelia is managing to feel justified in how she's treating uh, Susan here. It's how she's able to see herself as the victim in this scenario. That's one of the things that we really gets driven home in these section when she tells these stories to Susan, other than having any empathy for her or recognizing as a 16 year old, this might be really terrifying she basically reframes the whole thing as Susan is making this so hard for her and mm-hmm. she can't wait for this to be over because, you know, Susan's so ungrateful and is making her miserable and tense and she just wants her out of the house and this is exhausting for her. She sees herself as the victim in this situation and I think part of it is being able to disassociate and not recognize the other person's suffering because the aftermath of what happens in that room, it's quite clear that Susan is suffering. She's crying. She's got tears running down her face. She's pressed up against against that wall you know and i think i think this is how he can live with what he's doing is to be able to kind of have a complete lack of empathy for her well and when he walks out the door and accidentally bumps into the seamstress he apologizes to her but he doesn't he doesn't apologize to susan exactly exactly so so Mm. i do think that's happening it's interesting about the dog thing though i had not thought about it potentially being sort of a trap so the tower because, was mentioned bef- um, like right after the dog and then right before he rolls in there. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it seemed like a plan. And then for her to leave yeah. and come back right after he's done seems particularly yeah. convenient, not mm-hmm. an accident. And then mm-hmm. the thing is, is even when she comes back in, she isn't mean to Susan because like, Susan's like internally battling with herself like, I put myself on this stick and they'll just leave me there hanging, you know, and like, uh, it'll be my fault because I'm the one who sharpened it. And right. when the lady comes back in, she's like, it's just a hard world, kid. Right. Right. And like to, to say that means that like, she's completely aware of what That's was going so on. Interesting. I had such a totally different interpretation, but I mean, I, I the whole thing about the dog getting in is definitely speaking to my conspiratorial turn of mind. <laughs> <laughs> I took that conversation she had with her because Susan's sort of having this internal dialogue of, like you said, no one's going to have any sympathy for me. They're going to say it's my fault. No one's going to help me. Feeling really helpless, which I think speaks to a very real world experience of of experiencing sexual assault. And also it speaks to like the way that the society works around gender politics in Hambry. And so to me, what I kind of got was the seamstress was kind of like you know life is hard like you're gonna have to deal with this which is like not a non-judgmental way it acknowledges that she's actually suffering so that's it but i i don't know i had never occurred to me that she would be in on it so now i have to kind of like well she works for him totally totally yeah and like the reason for bringing her out was way oversold at the door Mm -hmm. and so it feels like it's like a three three three-part conspiracy like Mm-mm-mm. Mary goes and gets her and then, yeah, you know, sends her downstairs. And then that seamstress 
like purposefully leaves and then he rolls in and he's the source of the damage to the thing to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. And then we really briefly, we should talk about the actual assault that takes place. We don't need to go into detail, but I just think that Stephen King really wants you to sympathize with Susan's suffering here and makes it just about as horrifying as you possibly can imagine. We've all known he's going to be, it would be gross to have sex with him and his like grody old crack and bones and whatnot. But to see the the way that, that he's described, he basically transforms in this moment. He speaks differently. He looks like a ghoul, like over her shoulder. And well, he kind of gains a weird accent and yeah. like, yeah, like all the sort of pretense of the elite properness that he has as mayor is stripped away in this moment. And you just see the greed and monstrousness of him. And it, it exposes like any pretense around the idea of he just wants to have a child. He is exactly what Rhea described him to be. And and you really feel it. It's such an uncomfortable scene to listen to. <laughs> we listen to these chapters multiple times or read these chapters multiple times. And it's like, and when it would come up each time, I was like, no, not again. Because it really, he does, King makes you suffer through this scene. Like the, the little details, like when he licks her earlobe. Yeah. All that, oh, God. And like, just... the, like the, when he first cups her breasts, he, uh, she's like still sort of dreaming of Roland. And then, like, his knuckles crack and, like, she smells of the gross overtones of, like, uh, a tobacco-filled mouth breathing on her her neck. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good. Basically evaporates any illusions that Susan has about this situation, you know. This is this is her future. This is she is doomed to this if she cannot get out of this. And it's sort of like the true loss of innocence moment for her. I mean, you know, obviously this is followed up by the, you know, loss of innocence. But I think this is the moment where any idealistic or romantic side of her dies in this book or like could die if this was her future. Had she not met Roland? Oh, if someone's screaming, get out of here, you demon seed. Oh, my God. And never. OK, that's like my sex tip of this this episode never ever say that ever ever say that i I mean the thing to do to try and imagine a time where that would be an appropriate setting to say yeah the other thing we should talk about before we move on because we're getting out of the house um is that is cordelia's response you know she completely dismisses susan as we said she takes it a step further there's a little detail where we repeatedly a little smile sneaks out on her face yeah like she's happy that susan's suffering yeah and i mean to me that speaks of not just lack of empathy or or um ambivalence but actual like jealousy or resentment and a lot of understanding their dynamic i haven't fully it hadn't fully coalesced for me until this moment i mean she calls her like oh miss oh you so young and pretty and we know that she there is some degree of jealousy towards susan because of that mm-hmm. um but i think what we're understanding here is it's it goes beyond that like there is some to some degree i think cord actually kind of hates susan and and i think that that leaks out here because well she she uh revels every time she sees susan in like distress mm-hmm. and doesn't think she's in the right mood unless she's angry and like petulant basically right uh, i have one question for you though so uh stephen king goes out of his way to actually mention 
uh, gentleman that that uh, Aunt Cord had like yeah. rubbing relationships with <laughs> Fran Lingle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like, what's the significance there? So Fran Lingle, you probably I don't know if you remember he, he was one of the people that Roland met at the Thor, at Thorn at Thorn's dinner. Mm-hmm. He is the head of the Cattlemen's Association. Yes, okay. and I think in this situation, Cordelia was trying to sort of brag about like oh i got his attention and susan's just like i don't believe you. i think and i and i think we see a little bit of that same personality trait later when cordelia is walking with jonas and she's like looking around wanting people to notice her with this handsome man i think she was trying to brag about something that didn't really happen well, she would have loved to be in a position where she fell in love with somebody. And, like, Susan, even during their interactions, like, is screaming inside. They're like, I love someone. How could you do this to me? I know. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, man, melodramatic much, man. Jeez. Jeez, get out of here. You don't know nothing about heartbreak, kid. Uh, all right. All right. So what happens next? All right. So Susan uh, basically storms out of the house and, like, Hops on her horse and rides out to this grove by the river that she uh, has screamed all of her emotions into since she was uh, a young person. Um, this is where she cried to the stream about her dad's death, and she's cried about many other things. And she's there screaming and crying and like telling the empty space how she feels when she hears a crack behind her. Mm-hmm. And she immediately has like, PTSD to uh, uh, Thorin sneaking up on her. Mm-hmm. And is like, is that, oh, is that Thorin? I, and she sort of like has a little bit of a panic. And then she's like, whoever it is, get out of here. I, I don't want you around. And then like, sure enough, it's Roland. And he's like, hey, um, I'll leave if you tell me to again. <laughs> you know? Well, and- I think he's saying, if you ask me to bang you, I will say yes. Just <laughs> ask again. The answer is Yes. <laughs> And so they like the uh Roland like kisses the tears off of her cheeks. Yeah. And they like stare at each other's eyes. Roland like explains that he saw her ride by in a place where he likes to kind of ride and follow her down, fearful that there was some kind of problem going on. And she basically like makes direct eye contact and like re- reaches down below his belt buckle and gives him a nice sturdy squeeze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And from there, like, basically says, if you love me, love me, Roland. (laughs) And then we get about, like, I don't know, four or five pages worth of those guys rolling in the hay and then rolling in the hay again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got a few stars here. Um, One thing I'll mention before I I toss it back to you is – I want to know if there's any significance of Ka coming from the ground and shaking it for her versus like all these wind metaphors that we've been getting for other people's Ka. Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me read you the quote. So it says, she seemed to feel the ground move beneath her. And later she would think for the first and only time in her life that she had actually felt Ka, a wind that came not from the sky, but from the earth. It had come for me. It has come for me after all, she thought. My cough for good or ill. So I think there is a reoccurring kind of motif around 
love and this is getting a little bit ahead because it's more it's more so in the sex actual sex scene which happens in the next section Mm -hmm. but i guess we're going to talk about all of it here so it doesn't matter which is natural love versus unnatural love and i think we have this this unnatural sort of ghoulish monstrous semi-sex scene with thorin followed immediately by this beautiful natural love making scene and so i do think that and they of course have sex on the ground and are very like earthbound when it's happening <laughs> there's a you know a burbling brook nearby and they're on the moss and the it's water all... washes over the sound of the water washes over us yes 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 all of that jazz so i think that some of it is that right like it's just okay. sort of grounding them and this like natural force that takes over that would be my best interpretation for that. i was wondering if it was so with roland's call a lot of times it's just wind period mm-hmm. but with the susan's call it's the earth and I, I i thought maybe it was like um basically mother earth or like a feminine male mm. thing like a yin and yang oh i like so that the airs the the free man running around and like the earth gives birth to us all and like she's the female receiving ka and therefore it comes from mother earth or or something of that nature oh i love that i love that interpretation yes let's go with that one (laughs) well (laughs) and that's why i like i I wanted to underline it because it's like that's really weird that you decided completely change the way you've been describing ka lately you use the wind but like it rattles the earth and you know all these mother nature ground things are happening during that time and it's like well that's odd are you what are you trying to say here stephen king and maybe it's just like no no, no i love coincidence it. but it, it sounds legit when i say it out loud. no i love it i think that i i mean because he does make a point of saying it came from the ground and i hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it and except for like i said through that particular lens but i i, I mean and i think they work together right especially it takes my idea to like another level of of like actually putting that force that natural force into being like coming from the earth and the earth mother that's so amazing i love it especially since you know she thinks she's pregnant immediately but we'll get to that so (laughs) a couple of little small details i really loved here i love that we hear the branches snapping because we know roland we know that he's not snapping branches except for that he's doing it on purpose so that he doesn't sneak up on her he's like Mm -hmm. being conscientious which is really sweet and then there's this moment where he kisses her tears off her face which is such a tender unroland like moment that i just i thought were very sweet in this section also we know exactly what roland is talking about when he says you know i happen to see you from this place i like to go and think and you know, we know that he's basically at the the outlook or what is it called the overlook or the outlook where he has the good view of her house and he's been up there watching and pining under the auspices of keeping an eye on the town but really we know he's just been up there all <laughs> in his roland feelings about how things because they parted on such bad terms he's probably just waiting for the opportunity to finally get her alone so then when he sees her riding off all upset he's like here we go this is my moment (laughs) so that was yeah that was cute the thing i really really loved about this scene though for as much as we're joking about him her like grabbing his peen and whatever for all the talk of caw in this scene even though it's technically faded there's something about the fact that susan ultimately makes a very clear a very unambiguous choice she isn't taken by roland or swept up in the moment she initiates she shamelessly enthusiastically chooses to have sex with roland there's no ambiguity and no moral quandary 
she makes this choice and in it she reclaims her sexuality here which is the total opposite of what has just happened in that room and in, in you know at seafront mm-hmm. i love that the scene for that reason i also think it has an interesting parallel to what happened at the beginning of the book where she has this very invasive experience with ria which is immediately followed up by her meeting roland and again kind of reclaiming some of her agency and her mojo um and this is is definitely a more extreme version of that but i do feel like it shows again sort of as much as they're star-crossed lovers or whatever you know a la romeo and juliet there is something like very beautiful and natural about their connection and and it's so nice when this entire book has basically been about susan having all of her agency robin robbed for her when she finally does make this decision that is so totally and obviously her choice and then she makes it again and again, again. <laughs> get it, girl. <laughs> so they they basically make love in this like um, orchard slash mm-hmm. shire area, and then uh, you know Stephen King's fairly graphic. She loses her uh, virginity. Um, there's a splash of blood on the on the ground, so on and so forth. And then yeah. uh, as soon as they're done, she's basically like. What if you put a baby in me? <laughs> not not a big one for small talker girls. And it's like, wait, what? And like Roland's like, hey, if I put a baby in you, that's cool, girl. I got you. And she's like, oh, I love you even more. <laughs> and like, yeah. And Roland kind of has this weird, um, it's, it's a combination flashback. And one of it is like to his mother and like how excited he would be to tell his parents that he was continuing the the L line. Mm-hmm. But then the other is a kind of more grotesque flashback to his mother and her situation mm-hmm. in that room with her face and, and so on. And it's, it's like a, it's a double-sided coin. Like one's super dark and also the other one's like, Oh, look at you. You're a little guy. wanting to tell your parents about things. Yeah. <laughs> it's a strange juxtaposition. And then as they're talking, like Roland's like, I will, you know, take care of you for, as much as I can for the rest of our lives. And like, you don't have to go back to Thorin. He's, uh, you don't have to go to his bed. We'll figure something out. Yeah. And, and you know, like for shadow, for shadow. Right, um, right, 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 right. And then she's so enthusiastic that Roland like took all of this in stride and, and basically reinitiates another round of lovemaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they're back at it again. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I know we joke about Stephen King's sex scenes, but I think this is one of the better ones because there is something very sweet about it. It's very flowery. And to be honest, I'm very they personally... They each other's breaths. And yeah, like... yeah. I'm personally very, very over the comparison of vaginas to flowers. Please, please stop. however in this case i do think it kind of works thematically because you know what is the other thing that roland becomes obsessed with you know the The rose exactly that has the field of flowers around it so you know it's just sort of one of those examples of sort of thematically history rhyming so i'm gonna give him a pass on this one the other thing though (laughs) and we didn't talk about this how this section here after they have sex closes which is with the phrase so were they joined and so were they doomed which is you know we have this beautiful love love scene followed by like damn <laughs> i think if there's any question about how serious it, you should take what is being said here is is the fact that i don't know if you realize this because i know we both do audiobook but i i also read along in the chapter mm-hmm. i i read an ebook along with it and 
this whole section begins with caw hyphen paragraph break. So it's all basically being told almost through the perspective or couched in the in caw. So it takes on sort of the emphasis of a prophecy, essentially. Oh, so, okay. I didn't didn't realize that. It, mm-hmm. I read them when I was a kid, but right. I'm not... I'm not going to carry around like 12 books now and I don't have a Kindle. Yeah, of course not. I mean, but so, I mean, I, I just think that's a very ominous kind of thing mm. and kind of sad following all this like beautiful connection and like them finally going there. And then after, obviously, like I was joking, Susan is not a big on the small talk. She's like, you, I could be pregnant and you need to take care of me. I'm not banging this old dude anymore. <laughs> like it is pretty, pretty full on right away afterwards. I couldn't help but wonder, you know, like, obviously we know this is a Romeo and Juliet story. So, like, his ability to keep these promises are probably fairly limited. But even if they weren't, if this wasn't a Romeo and Juliet story, I kind of wondered, like, how likely is it that Roland would be able to keep these promises? You know, I I believe he would try, but I'm not so convinced that he would be able to. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just... and then there's even like a little bit where she asks him how old he is, right? And he like completely dodges the question. <laughs> He's, he doesn't want to. He's tell like, him. I'll be 14. you know an old man if I have to keep dealing with all this hassle. I know. Like, I no, know. dude. She she asks you a question and you just dodged it. He totally dodged it. I mean, he does totally have the old man problem. We learn here of not being able to sleep anymore. Like he, you know, he slept badly all summer and now he's you know he's gonna sleep badly for the rest of his life i was like welcome to middle age my friend sorry it (laughs) happened at 14 (laughs) Um, so the other thing i forgot to mention too is um while they're like before roland like flicks her nipple and they go back at it again um which why you don't flick people's nipple that's not very nice i don't i don't know Maybe <laughs> um kind of painful uh but roland like sort of like in the previous time when they were together roland didn't sense anything and susan sensed someone was watching him and this time like roland like looks around a couple times and sort of feels as though they're being watched yeah i, I was gonna ask you what do you why do you think only roland senses at this time well i can't uh, give my explanation without like just bouncing on to the next thing. Ah. Uh, so, do you want to jump forward, or do you want one last more thing, on and then we can definitely jump forward? Which is just that Roland kind of notes that DePape has not told Jonas, indicates that things are more dangerous, and considering what they've just done and what they're about to do, is ominous. But yeah, let's let's move on to the next thing so that you can talk about Rhea. Cut scene to Rhea, and who she has is... been a freak seven days a week. With yeah, all of her group it, sex and necrophilia talk. Who's like, <laughs> I've seen all kinds, of, like, she's staring into the thing watching these guys have sex. And, like, she, um, she, yeah, ex- basically, like, talks about, like, all the crazy sex stuff that she's seen over the years from, like, dead people and multiple people and, and people who don't want it and people who want it in weird ways and, and so on. And that, that doesn't really interest her anymore. She's more excited about seeing the results of, of her Susan programming that we got kind of a, a glimpse of at the end of her visiting the shack. And meanwhile, we get the description of the pink orb that she's staring into mm-hmm. and like how it's slowly starting to eat Rhea some more. Yeah. And so the reason I wanted to wait and mention that, um, mention what I think about what's going on with Roland feeling it and her not. So my theory is that Susan had, um, 
Susan had cast out the pink orb from viewing her. Mm-hmm. And so the pink orb basically can't view it from her perspective anymore and is now viewing it from Roland's perspective. Wait, what? Okay, so so <laughs> in Oh no no, okay. I, I can explain this maybe a little bit better. So basically when they're in the oil field, Susan tells Rhea to be gone and the orb just shuts off. Right? Right. So at the time, like Rhea was basically using her energy to mm. watch Susan from Susan's perspective, right? Okay. So this time the orb is piggybacking on Roland. Right. And so Roland feels the uh, watching eye of the orb and Susan does not. Okay. So then we cut forward to when Roland hypnotizes her and everything goes pink. Mm-hmm. And so her basically like, I don't know, using her psychic powers or whatever to to disband the orb from watching her, like Rhea had to use another means to follow these two to okay. where they went. Got right? It. Yeah, yeah. And so she, she then Roland like basically cast the orb out in a similar manner and now she can't see him again. Well, I mean, that got disrupted by well the cat too yeah 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 yeah. but yeah okay okay i I don't know maybe i'm wrong no 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 no. i mean honestly i don't know the answer so your answer is as good as as any as far as i'm concerned i would be curious to see what listeners think you know i'm less confident than i i am my normal theories after i got that explained i'm like you know what it's a little weird that like roland would be the orb uh you know like be followed by the orb but then, like, why does I he mean, sense it and she doesn't? And why does the sensing change? Because Roland has already been written as a character that's less sensitive to this sort of thing. Right. And- Which comes back to my my fundamental curiosity about how the orb works itself. And I wondered... So it made me think a little bit about the Thinny. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes, too. So here we go. Oh, no so problem. it made me think a little bit about the Thinny and how the Thinny there has is different than the one, presumably, than the one that modern day Roland is cruising around in right Mm -hmm. that one seemed to have agency it seemed to have a will of its own it seemed to have some desires or agenda of its own and I wonder if the same thing is happening with this this orb like there is is it someone controlling someone else controlling the orb like Saruman style or is the orb itself self-aware and like has its own agency and is doing its own thing i'm sure i could look this up on the internet but i'm trying not to spoil things for myself but i wonder (laughs) if understanding what the or how the orb works and what it may or may not want maybe would explain why susan senses it once and roland senses it the other like is in one case you like you said like it's spying on susan and so she feels it like it, it there's a connection between Rhea looking at Susan and Susan that she can feel on the other end, like sort of like quantum entanglement style versus later, maybe she's spying on Roland. And so he feels it sort of quantum entanglement style. Well, now, as soon as you mentioned the cat and you're absolutely right, like, so her cat jumps on her lap, distracts her. And then the orb goes dark and he jumps into the fire and like, she starts the fire on purpose and like burns. I know. Bad. If you ever wanted to know if Rhea is evil, she burnt her own cat. Yeah. And the description of the cat's tail coming out is like an unclipped cigar that has been burned. (laughs) Like, Ooh, but, but so the thing is, all right. So. Now we know two things about the orb. We know one that Susan can cast the orb out from watching her. 
And two, we know that Rhea has to use concentration to watch her. But if the, the concentration is the case and only the case, then why wouldn't she have just tried to keep watching, like concentrated back on Roland and, and started watching again? Well, I guess that maybe that means that the orb is making the choices for her. Oh, like the okay. So, well, all right. So we do already kind of know that the the orb is self aware because it's eating her. Right. So it's like a creature that is absorbing the person who feels like they're getting benefit out of it. So then, do you think that the orb is is like let her feel good about this one, so she'll come back and look at me some more, and that way she doesn't suffer the disappointment of knowing that like her uh, her trap didn't didn't spring the way she thought it would well i mean there's also the idea for one thing it it behooves it to keep Rhea entertained and interested because it's feeding off of her Mm -hmm. but also if it has its own agenda maybe it is in some way like a counter to like it it, okay we know farson had it I don't think it's a stretch to think maybe Randall Flagg gave it to him. So, like, maybe it's somehow it's pink. Maybe it's somehow the tool of the Crimson King. And so it's purposely showing her these things so that at some point she can be an antagonist in preventing Roland and Susan from being together or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. Um, Only time will tell. I guess, right. We'll keep going. We'll figure it out as we go. (laughs) Okay, so uh, basically what we find out is that Rhea's watching them have sex, and she's excited to see what happens when they're done because she's planted the seed. We're finally going to find out! In her mind. And it's still... It's still a little unclear, like, what the complete uh, context of this seed she planted was, but it's definitely like a disfiguring, right. if not um, at, at least chopping all of her hair off. So basically, we cut back to Roland and Susan, and they're kind of like drifting off after uh, postcoital bliss. And Susan is like almost falling asleep, and then when Rhea's looking into the ball, she like whispered, <laughs> "You know, do that thing that I told you to do." Mm-hmm. And Susan gets up and wanders to the creek bed and roland is about to fall asleep but he he sort of uh, comes to wakes up goes to check on her and as he walks over she's naked uh, next to the creek digging in the creek for rocks uh to find a sharp one apparently and roland gets over to her but not super fast not fast enough for her to get a chunk of her hair cut off and like Roland was so fearful of what might have happened that he thought maybe a demon had taken over and that maybe she was going to cut her own throat and mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been able to make it if she if yeah. that was her intent. But as Roland grabs her hand to prevent her from doing more damage to herself, like he has to he has to almost give up um, ground on holding her hand to get close enough to her to startle her awake by clicking in her ear. Mm-hmm. And he kind of wrestles with her, hurts her, but like the description here, and I, this is one of the ones I wanted to ask you about, Rachel, is almost like not only was she about to cut her hair off, but also to disfigure herself. Um, I think it, it, they're wrestling. It's when she was wrestling. What what she wanted her to do was cut her hair off. And that's but it. You don't maybe, think she was supposed to like... I mean, who's to say? I think it was the hair, though, specifically because she was petting her hair when she was doing it. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was more menacing than that because like... 
her being so close to like cutting her own cheek is like, oh, or did she also plan for her to cut her nose off or something? I mean, of that it's nature quite possible, but. I kind of can't. My interpretation was that it was just the hair. It could very well be more than that. But for me, I was kind of, I don't know. I couldn't remember what it was that she did because, like, I read this in the 90s and have not really thought about it since. So I genuinely did not remember what it was and I did not spoil it for myself. But I thought for sure what she was going to do was either kill herself or kill Thorin or, in this case, Roland, right? And then, like, Roland would stop her because he's a gunslinger or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I both overestimated how how like evil or how um, vicious she is, deadly she is, but also underestimated what a petty like monster she is. She, <laughs> you know, this isn't just violence. It's it's slyer. It's nastier. It's cruelty for cruelty's sake. You know, she wants to punish Susan by humiliating her and making basically essentially giving her a scarlet letter, right? In the form of having her hair cut off. And she also kind of wants to stick it to Thorin too, by ruining his pretty thing. Right. Yeah. And, and so like, it tells you, I mean, one thing that Stephen King does really, really well is that he just allows you to get the worldview of a character, like with, with Rhea, whenever we're getting her internal dialogue, we learn her worldview, the way that she views things, and it, it allows us to sort of extrapolate and and fill out who that character is. It's like a perfect example of showing, not telling, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we know about her nasty worldview is that she sees Susan as only having her her sole value is in her beauty and like her as a sex as someone who's sexually desirable, right? And so she is totally offended and resentful and her feelings are hurt by Susan's rejection when she was being a creep in her hut. And so she wants to cut her down. She wants to cut her down to nothing. And so to her, like to her, the like things she could do to do that, to diminish her in the completely is to humiliate her and cut her hair off and to, to rob her of the, some of the beauty that is her value and uh i don't know like it's it's just so petty and so ugly and in some ways makes her even more nasty and despicable than if she was just like well then i'm just gonna have you kill yourself well so okay then from the perspective do you think if like susan was less attractive that she would be Rio would be less upset or mean to her and is it more of a like same with like almost a mirror of Aunt Cord. I mean, in that they're like basically pissed off that they didn't get the same lot when they were younger. I think that Rhea is a hateful little toad, and oh, okay. nothing is. She hates everyone. There's literally no one except for the thinny that she doesn't hate. <laughs> she throw her own cat into a freaking fireplace. She is a monster. Um, I think Cord would. I think Cord would be bothered by her, like she would lose her usefulness and she would also probably secretly be happy that Susan was robbed of her beauty. I think she would enjoy it a little bit, Hmm. but that's, that's my conjecture. Obviously that's not, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know. For a second, I was trying to draw a line between those two. Yeah. But I I don't know if it's there or not. It's kind of, I I mean, the line is that they both totally resent Susan's beauty. 
that's yeah. the line between them. They both totally resent her beauty and her desirability. Well, it, so it it kind of reminds me of um, like a, the Cinderella story where, or not Cinderella. Um, shoot, what, what's the one with the girl and all the other girls in the house hate her because she's pretty? I think that's Cinderella. She's like, is that Cinderella and she's the maid? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, that is Cinderella. All yeah. right. For some, for some reason, I, maybe I was thinking like, is that the one with the dwarfs or is that the one with the singing mice? <laughs> no, I mean, the queen is jealous of, of Snow White's beauty. I mean, it just kind of reiterates like why, how this sort of fits into this sort of like more of the medieval European sort of fantasy ideas versus mm-hmm. Westerns is that like, it also comes back to these, these very fairy tale tropes with like the ugly witch who is resentful of someone's beauty living up on the Hill. All, you know, the, the, like you said, the evil sisters, or in this case, the aunt who's resentful of her beauty mm-hmm. and, you know, this Prince charming coming out of nowhere to save her from this fate. It's all very fairy tale, but also very like, medieval sort of fantasy um yeah yeah okay so uh we we cut back to uh, roland and susan uh they're both naked on the beach he's wrestled this rock out of her hand and woken her up from her uh sort of trancey trance and she's shocked startled when she comes to and it's like roland they they hurt me (laughs) (laughs) and and like uh he's like no 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 you're you're about to do this thing and and she's like, what? And he's like, um, can I do something to you, Susan? And she like snaps too. And she's like, whatever you want, Roland. <laughs> you know, was that not enough for you? You need you know, to try something different. And yeah, like, yeah. Roland's like, uh, let me try and hypnotize you. And it's like that fun trope that you get with like anybody you've ever seen hypnotized. He's like, this will never happen to me. And, and then, then they're hypnotized almost like immediately. <laughs> totally and and so she's completely under she explains the entire story to roland of how she or went to ria's uh shack and how ria flicked her bean and and all that business and and then she stops at the doorway kind of explains what happened at the doorway but then she says you know almost in like a joking manner and then it went pink you know like uh the moon And, and so that description right there was like um that's where I was trying to draw this line between the orb and mm. and Rhea and the orb and Susan and being able to, like, cast it out. I, I don't know if it's there. And now that I say it out loud, I, I, I probably don't think it is. I mean, but it's such a strange reference to. that makes you, like, want to know what they mean or what he means by that. Why Why did it go pink? And, like, it's not really explained. Right. I was hoping you were going to explain it to me. I had the same question. Like, what does it mean that, well, first of all, is she just blending memories? Because also that was the night she saw Rhea looking into the pink orb. Is it, or is there some degree of when Sue, like, did somehow it get up in the mix? Or was the power that Rhea was using somehow coming partially from the orb? Or So I, I have two theories. Okay. Um, wh- one theory, and I wanted to ask you first in case you had a better. No, no, I don't. I, I totally am at a loss on this one. Okay, so my one first theory is like this is a Crimson King thing, and that like right. some of Rhea's powers are actually derivative of like her evil link to the you know the bad guy side right. of things. Like right. this, the the pink is the dark side of the force, I suppose. Right, 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 right. And so like Rhea, like wiping her brain 
is something to do with that same pink glowing uh, uh, orb that has a similar power structure. But my second thing, and this one's probably a little less fever dream and a little more possible, is that when Susan sees the orb, it glows. Yeah. And so the glowing there and the glowing of the lack of memory almost feels as though the orb is dictating their caw path Mm. and also like blocking Rhea from seeing that her trap didn't quite work out, but also blocking Susan from explaining who it was that hypnotized or, you know, completely alluding to and revealing like who's got the orb and what's going on. Like a fingerprint almost. Yeah, exactly. Like Mm -hmm. it basically feels like it, it wanted her to not focus in on seeing the orb but to focus in on just her and Rhea's interactions right. and like left a ghost print around the rest of it. And she even sort of like, it, it works so well that when she like, she's like, no pink, silly, you know? Right. Right. I do also think it's really interesting and maybe you could help me weave this into your theory okay. is that we know that the moon is a reoccurring sort of motif throughout the book, right? You know, mm-hmm. we've talked about what each of the the moons potentially could mean and how they inform what the, the is going to be happening in the story and all of them. And so now we have the, the, this glass that we know exists and that we know, you know, Rhea's all up in is now being co- connected to the moon through this memory that she sees it become a moon and so i want to know if you think what you think about that oh well so the the moon portion and where the orb becomes the moon i i thought it's pretty easy metaphor basically a blood moon like stephen base stephen king basically alludes to and now they're joined and now it's doom you know Right, right. We have this orb that now basically is led us to believe and represent the moon in Susan's mind Mm -hmm. as a blood, like a blood moon. (laughs) Oh, I like it. Nothing good happens on a blood moon. No, 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 no. And and so it's it's like a double entendre because we know that doom is coming. Right, like it's already been alluded to. Mm -hmm. We also know that like she lost her virginity. So in two foul swoops, we have like double entendre blood moon. Right. Right? Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think, I mean, I, yeah, that sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) I accept it. (laughs) I mean, so a lot of times I just off the cuff these. So if you have a better idea, no, no, no. I think that is, that sounds great to me because I, I, I felt like there was significance, but I couldn't pull, there was too many pieces, you know what I mean? And I couldn't pull them together. And I feel like I think the introduction of the concept of the blood moon really, yeah, that helps me, I think. That definitely yeah, and I mean, you know, go watch a horror movie anytime a blood moon's going down. Like, it's going to be bad it, times. It's on, right? Right. right. <laughs> and the, the one other thing I want – well, there's more things I want to mention about this. But, like, one thing in particular, it, and when Roland, like, wakes up to go after her, yeah, the thing that he has internally is actually – so there's times in Roland's career throughout these books where someone from the past will sort of call to him. Mm-hmm. And then drives him to action. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's like someone we almost never hear from. And it's actually court. Yeah. <laughs> telling him to like get up and go. Get up, maggot. And, there's no time. Yeah, there's no time. And the, the thing is, is uh, I want to underline that because Roland's internal dialogue is that if she was going to do something more harmful to herself 
first, he wouldn't have been able to get there. And Court basically prodding him to go save her mm-hmm. is is also underlining the fact that maybe she was going to do something more horrible. Uh, but maybe. I don't know. That could be. I, I don't know. It just it was really interesting that Court came up uh, of anybody, and like Stephen King kind of underlines it three times when he brings it up. So it, it yeah. must mean something. I just don't have an answer. Yeah, I feel like um, maybe I've watched too much Avatar, but I feel like all these voices are basically like previous avatars <laughs> telling him things. Yeah. So rolling in a previous life was court is what you're telling no, me? No, no, no. <laughs> Even I'm not that much of a conspiracy nut. I mean, if you tasked me with it, I could probably find some way to make Well, I that mean, that would be kind of fun. Like every time he trains himself to go out on yeah. this quest, <laughs> every time... He is destroyed by himself. Yeah. Over and over again. Mm-hmm. 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 Like maybe in a, p- a past version, he didn't get there in time. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to mention here is uh, um, when Roland's waking her up, he tells her to remember everything that they've talked about while she was hypnotized. Mm-hmm. And then he has like a little poem that's like, a bird, a bear, it's the title a rabbit, of the, it's a, and a fish or something like that. It's the title of this chapter. Yeah. Bear and bird and hair and fish. Oh, yeah. Hair and fish. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is one other little detail here that I wanted to to go back to with the prior to the hypnotism. He goes to his his horse and he gets well, first he gets her a little bucket so he can make a mirror for her, which is very sweet and very thoughtful of Roland. He's such a little tender sweetie in this, at this point before life has beat him into the Roland we know now. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that he goes to get the shells out of a locked box. And in the box are the shells, which obviously we understand why those would be locked away, right? Because he's trying to hide the fact that he's a gunslinger so he can't have like shells rattling around where people can see it. But the mm-hmm. other item in this locked box is a locket with a drawing of his mother. And I feel like there is some significance here, considering where he's at sort of psychological with the mom stuff that the things that he keeps in his secret box are a memento of his mother not of his father of his mother and bullets and so i want to know what you if you thought anything about that i didn't really catch that part okay okay (laughs) um so i have no i have zero locket thoughts Um, (laughs) you are a zero for locket thoughts got it (laughs) yeah yeah i don't i don't really know uh i'm sorry i didn't deep think that one no um, no it's fine it's fine yeah, I couldn't quite, again, I was like, there's something, I think we're, if that box represents Roland's secret place where he keeps the things that he's hiding. I think the bullets obviously are hiding from other people, but there's some stuff about like the mom that maybe he's even hiding from himself. Well, throughout this uh, chapter, he thinks about his mom mm-hmm. while cross thinking about Susan yeah. multiple times, which I mean... Maybe this is just a Freud thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yes, it's very Freudian. Yes, yes. Uh, but but also um, maybe he sees Su- or a little bit of his mom and Susan in this like trapped in a bad situation uh, lady. You know what, what I'm I'm saying? Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I don't, I don't know. But and maybe that's why Stephen King would focus on his mom. But like, you know, it's, she's a, a point of contention for him and something that will haunt him the rest of his life yeah i guess these and are the so two women that will haunt him forever, carrying her right? locket around like knowing the fact that she was uh cheating on her, his dad but also knowing that she was doing it in order to save him is like a is a, a tragedy and a i mean maybe not a blessing but 
it, it's a Greek tragedy type of thing, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, these are the two women that have, like, left him traumatized, right? We open the book with him, like, fainting at the thought of Susan getting the vapors, and he hears the, the thinning and thinking of Susan. And then, you know, but at this point, this is the woman who's, like, caused him the most trauma. There's some weird mother stuff here I don't know how I feel about now that we're digging yeah. into this. <laughs> so Susan finds that little poem so sweet when she wakes up that she uh, decides to hop on Roland next to the stream again. And they have another uh, roll in the sand, uh, Roland the sand. Oh, oh my God. And then uh, Stephen King politely tells us exactly 20 minutes later. Yeah. They, uh, they're both dressed and he's helping her onto her horse. And uh, they're discussing methods for communication and that she should be watchful. Yeah. Uh, Susan tells him that there's a loose brick in this little area where he could hide a note for her. And Roland says that Shimi could provide some um, information back and forth between the two as well. So they have a few methods sorted out. But he knows that it's going to be a stressful future as Jonas and the gang are basically watching everything that they're up to. Mm -hmm. And they need to figure out when to make their move. And so then Susan kind of rides off in the opposite direction and we are left with like an ominous feeling of danger and the future being doom. Mm -hmm. And you got a couple stars here, so yeah, just, I'll I mean, back to you. It, they're just sort of passing notes like kids, despite the fact that the stakes that they're up against are very grown up, and the fact that that Roland even admits to himself that eventually, no matter how careful they are, they're going to slip up, you know, because the the big coffin hunters are watching them and are onto them. And he doesn't even know about court at this point, right? You know, they're every, they're every move is being watched. And yet here he is willing to risk it anyway, you know, as clever as she tells him he is, he, he's being very dumb here. And he is clearly struck dumb by love. The Roland of now would never put him, put someone, put himself in, in this kind of situation. situation. Yeah. Where yeah. he knowingly is taking these risks. So as much as he, knows the stakes i don't think he truly understands the impact of the stakes the other detail obviously is that they're going to pass each other notes underneath a red rock oh yeah there you go <laughs> so that's just a little detail but i'm just like blood uh. moon red rock yeah uh, uh, uh. <laughs> all right final section uh so then we jump back to town and aunt cordelia is is wandering through picking up a package at some local merchant and lo and behold uh jonas rolls up and she's all hot and bothered uh -huh, and, uh -huh. and like as she's um seeing him does it for her, apparently. her her description is like um i believe it's like a, a, a man that's shaped like a weapon but carries uh, himself like a blade carry yeah carries himself like a blade and, and so I sort of I don't know if this is fact or fiction, but I because uh, I often don't pay attention to the description of people in books. <laughs> um, but I imagine Aunt Cord is like this thin, sort of spindly, yes. pointy, yes. birdish person. Yes, she's basically looks a bit like Susan, but is like much sharper and like and skinnier. Yeah, she's yeah. sort of like a yeah, like what you would imagine sort of a spinster version of Susan would look like, and we know that because that is why. Uh, Jonas specifically targeted her. He's like, my experience, women of this appearance are the person you want to, like, who will have all the inside tea and can be manipulated. 
Yeah, and so she really finds the fact that he carries himself like a blade, which also sort of makes me feel like he's a sharp and pointy person as well. Oh, okay, okay. So I guess where I was going with that um, before I lost my my train of thought was uh, that the that they're both like sharp edged and evil, and like they almost like sharpen each other. Mm, but I, I don't know, like that that might be a stretch too. Uh, regardless, um, she fancies him. She's hoping that like other people around town will see them together and like it'll create a little frenzy of of chat in the mm-hmm. town about what they might be up to. Right. And he sort of like offers her to uh, call him um, by a, a more uh, leisure name as opposed to a more proper name. Call and she me turns Aldrin. him down mm-hmm. and he he like faints distress at this and like plays a good game and she's really into that and he offers to carry her box all the way to the end of the corner before he has to go up the hill and and this is where we find out that he has a new task in town Mm -hmm. and his new task is to assist the sheriff as for some reason one of his deputies uh broke his leg climbing out of a boat Mm -hmm. and the thing is is jonas like he basically makes a joke of it it says who does that and the question hangs for a second, and it's like, or maybe you broke his leg. He totally broke his leg, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. I, I thought that was like a I mean, but I, I wanted to throw it past you. I think it speaks to Jonas's canniness and his ability to play castles that he turns it into this joke, and they kind of laugh about it and like, oh, that deputy is such a dumbass, you know? But we know the real Jonas, and we're like, you broke that dude's leg. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought. So uh, basically, after we find this out, and and this circles all the way back around to the beginning of what I was mentioning about um, them not acting on the information that they have. Yeah. And I think that actually alludes to the fact that they have already acted on – the information yes. by becoming part of law enforcement, they now mm-hmm. have more power yes. than they previously did. Mm-hmm. So, in the next iteration, if the gang bounces up against him, it would be fighting law enforcement as opposed to fighting, um, you know, another group of just sort right. of random folks. It definitely eliminates any uh, any need for Sheriff Avery to try to play the center here. Yep, because now they have the power of the badge. Yeah, and so they can just be like, I was just doing what I'm supposed to do. Don't even worry about it. Right? And I think, you know, it lends them a certain level of authority where maybe, like, killing them on the street might have had some some minor political consequences. If they're now sheriffs, they feel like they can do whatever they want to do with impunity because of the authority. Yeah, I think you're totally right. So Ugh. Aunt Cord and... Uh... And Jonas sort of part, part ways, and she's flushed for a little bit. But pretty soon, walking home, uh, she actually gets flushed because it's it's apparently hot and miserable out. And she uh, she catches Susan coming in and notices that Susan looks like Susan of previous years and not Susan of current years. Um, a little more chipper, a little more fresh, uh-huh. and immediately. Uh, Aunt, her aunt is basically like something's up right i don't like seeing her this kind of happy <laughs> this isn't right right and, and if uh susan had rolled up a little bit earlier she probably wouldn't have noticed because she was still kind of focused on her own um uh silly silly billy feelings for her uh her man but because she's gotten hot and kind of flustered now she's 
paying attention to Susan. And actually, when Susan explains away her hair being messed up and the fact that her hair is wet and like that she didn't get water on her dress because Aunt Cord always told her that that was a bad idea. Um, and then gets like pert with Aunt Cord. Aunt Cord actually is like, oh, that's the Susan I want. I want the yeah. Susan that's <laughs> mad and angry all the time and not happy about anything. Right, <laughs> and right. And like that, it like breathes a sigh of relief into Aunt Cord that mm-hmm. like, oh, it's business as usual. <laughs> you better apologize to me, Susan. Now carry this box inside. Yeah, some of it is now she's acting how she's supposed to be acting, as that's very suspicious. But I also think one of the things that happens in her conversation with Jonas is that he sort of plants a little seed of suspicion, which I thought was interesting. When they're having the conversation, first of all, we get to see a slightly different side of the two of them, right? You know, mm-hmm. he we get to see the charming side of Jonas. The flirtatious side. Yes. We've seen him sort of suspiciously watching from a distance. We've had his internal dialogue. We know what a cold piece of work he is. We've seen him interact with the big coffin hunters. But there is an, another side to Jonas, and it, it's a performance side, but he does it very effectively. The other thing I think is interesting is that when they start talking – Basically, we find out about the the deputizing thing. But the other thing that Jonas wants to talk about is Susan. He asks, Mm -hmm. you know, how is she doing? How is that going? You've got a lot on your hands. But I kind of feel like two things are happening here. One, I think he's sort of planting the seed of suspicion around Susan, which concerns me that it might mean he already is hip to what's going on with Susan and Roland. Yeah, maybe. But also... I wonder if he is, because he is a bodyguard of Thorin, if he's kind of trying to feel her out and see if she's freaking out or if there's any threats to the deal that's going on because of what happened with the dry hump. Mm, Maybe. I don't feel like Thorin would have gone to get his, his, um, what do they call it? What does he call the... The coffin hunters, enforcers or something, or regulators. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I don't think he would have bothered to go tell his regulators, "Hey, I, uh, I totally dry humped this girl today." Ooh, look at me, I'm a man. Because <laughs> I guess you're right. It doesn't as a as a coarse dude who's like values bad humor. Like that's not the thing you're gonna go tell your like strong men about because <laughs> it's kind yeah. of lame and and makes you look bad. That's right? true. Okay, so then that makes me more worried. Well, whatever the case is, it works because Susan comes away from this conversation very, or not Susan, Cord comes away from this very suspicious. Does she? So I guess what I picked up was like she was too busy worrying about him and the look of town to really, really be uh, super worried about Susan. In fact, like that's. I thought why Stephen King almost underlined the fact that she was so caught up in that moment with him that if Susan would have showed up a little bit earlier, she wouldn't even noticed anything at all. Right. I, I think I, I let me rephrase it. I think that she he primed her to be suspicious. Oh, yeah, maybe. He, so like and that shows how subtle his machinations are where he could basically be subtle enough to kind of incept this idea without her even realizing because she's too busy coquettishly smiling at him and getting all caught up in her romantic feelings yeah but i don't know there is it this closes out with one sort of small interesting detail which is that when susan takes the box from her to go inside cord waits in order to not walk in with her 
And so we've seen her emotionally distancing from Susan in this section, and now we're seeing her physically distancing from her. And it also puts her in a position to allow her to follow and observe her, which is something that, considering what she's thinking in this moment about how like she's at a dangerous age and she has to be watched and protected, is very concerning, particularly because we now know that Susan and Roland are maybe not being as careful as they think they are and are are done with the like, we can't be together thing and are planning to continue to communicate and see each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that seems reasonable. All right, cool. All right. Well, <laughs> that was it for the chapter. What did you think of this chapter? You know, I'm not as keen on Stephen King's sex scenes. <laughs> this one was as reasonable as it could be. Um, I, I don't know. It was okay. Uh, it's it's stuff that has to happen to keep the plot going interestingly uh-huh. but it kind of just leaves me hanging wanting to get to the actual right. uh meat of this as opposed to you know the the prep to get to that meal you know what i'm saying yeah 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 i know what you mean and, and i'm i'm pretty sure if i remember this correctly like we will get more stalling before we get answers. Really? Oh my God. I mean, I guess there's still a lot of book left. There's still a lot yeah, of book left. And so don't be prepared to be satisfied in like the next chapter, maybe even a couple. Okay. <laughs> but that's if I remember right. If I don't remember right, then like, um, you know, uh, a curse on me or whatever. But there yeah. you go. Yeah, I I think I like this chapter a little more than you did. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, which is fine. I mean, uh, it's not my favorite for sure. My favorite is still definitely the showdown at the Traveler's Rest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did think, you know, we've been building and like, will they, won't they for so long. It was kind of great to get that them finally pull the trigger, as it were, and finally get give in to their feelings, give in to call. I thought it was sweet. For a chapter where not a lot happened, uh, I think that it was impactful and really important stuff that things that, that happened. And I think that there are, are, are instances in this section that are in can, continuing to make me more and more emotionally invested in Stephen and Roland. And normally, like, you know, Stephen King love stories are not ones that I get super deep into. So I think he's doing a good job of making me care about them and making them and building up towards whatever tragedy is going to befall them. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of mysterious shit that happened in this. Like I found my imagination very much piqued by the stuff about how the the wizard glass works and I don't know why I called it wizard and glass. The glass <laughs> the, you know what I mean? The glass. I don't know. The orb. The pink thing Um, thing. and so that that kind of stuff always appeals to me so i i had a good time listening to this chapter i liked this chapter even though some of it was kind of kind of (laughs) rough all right so plan for the next episode we are going for those of you who are playing along with us we are going to be covering a couple of things don't worry dj one of them is five minutes long (laughs) Okay, okay, good. Let's not overdoing it. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not overdoing it, but we, we have to lump it in somewhere. So we're going to be covering Wizard and Glass, Interlude, Kansas, Somewhere, Someone, and we're going to start part three, Come Reap. Oh, no. Chapter one, <laughs> Beneath the Huntress Moon. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I guess we're going to find out what the Huntress Moon is all about. I'm guessing nothing good. All right. No connections to the Stephen King universe that I heard 
I noticed and no real Stephen King adaptation news except that the stand starts next week. I have the weekend here on the notes, but that is wrong. It starts on the 17th. So on the next episode, we will be covering the first episode of the stand miniseries. Ooh. Yeah, I'm excited. Have you been paying attention to it at all? No, I haven't. I I was afraid if I looked into it, yeah. I would be disappointed. So I've just been staying radar free. Yeah, uh, you know, not no forward advance look. So, do you want to know something interesting about it that is not a spoiler? Per sure, se? lay it on me. the The end of the world happens. Uh, and yes. Oh my god! You, I thought you said you weren't looking into it. <laughs> no, but everybody knows the plot. Yeah, of the no, Come on. I'm just messing with you. Uh, apparently, Stephen King wrote a new ending for the miniseries. What? Yeah. Uh, so, wait, wait. We're not going to end up with like Stephen King in it again, and like an ice bunker. He in, is like, going to be in it. <laughs> he does have a cameo, apparently. But yeah, he has rewritten at least partially some of the end of the movie. You know, I don't care what anybody says. The original miniseries from the '90s was actually quite enjoyable. Oh, I agree. Like, <sighs> all right so yeah so the stand will definitely be covering the first episode i'm really looking forward to it we'll see how it stands up to the original um <laughs> stands up ah. um, okay quickly we do have some listener feedback this episode so we got an email let me pull that up really quickly all right, so this email came from John May, uh, who I believe is this is the first time we've heard from him. So he said, I wanted to say thank you uh, for planting the seed about the talisman. Yay! I, I, I'm always trying to get everybody to read that book because I love it so much. I did it to you, DJ. <laughs> yeah, and I, I need to go get the second one and actually go through it too. Yeah, definitely, because that one has much more direct. Like, I feel like it spiritually connects, the talisman spiritually connects to the Dark Tower, but black house actually directly connects to dark tower so you should definitely uh, okay. i mean we may who knows maybe we'll cover it on the on the podcast so he said i stopped listening to the dark tower series for a bit to listen to the talisman and black house i own black house but i have yet to read it but i'm going to read i'm going to listen instead the reason i mention is uh mention this is an earlier podcast one of the listeners or you rachel were talking about twinners from the talisman thinking that jake is oh Okay, I remember what this letter was about. So let me just pause for a second because this is a spoiler. There are spoilers in this email. So spoilers specifically for this book. So if you are spoiler adverse, if this is your first time reading the books, dip out. We'll see you in a couple of weeks when we review the next chapter. Um, but this one has a pretty big spoiler in it. So this is your chance to exit. This, as DJ would say, is where the... Blood in, bloodline red is. splashes on the moss. <laughs> okay. All right. So the reason I mentioned this is in an earlier podcast, you were talking about twinners from the talisman, thinking that Jake was Jack's twinner. I've been thinking about this since then, and this is where we get into the spoiler zone. I think, here we go, and this is this is blowing my mind. I think that the baby that Roland and Susan were going to have was Jake's twinner. And that is why Roland has such a connection to Jake from the beginning. I also think instinctively Roland knows this and why it's why he felt so guilt ridden about Jake dying for a decision that Roland made. Right. Once when he chose not to save Susan and once when he let Jake fall thoughts. Hmm. I mean, that's a really good theory. 
And that would also explain why Roland and Jake have shared minds because they're shared lineage. Mm -hmm. And so not just... So remember when I waxed and complained about how those two together's, like, psychic disturbance was a little stupid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, If you add the fact that they're father-son, that changes things immensely and makes it, like, way more dramatic. Yeah. So I I like what he's saying there. too. Is it legit? You know, I don't know if it's canon, dude, but it it sounds awesome. I like what you're you're putting down there. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Um, Obviously, I don't know. Like you said, it's not canon, but it it makes a lot of things make a lot of sense. And one of the things that we talk a lot about with Roland or with Jake is this comparison of the two father figures. You know, there is Elmer, who is everything Roland is not, and Roland, mm-hmm. who is much more of a true father to Jake in all the ways that really matter. And if sort of this is sort of you know Ka and its cyclical nature and all of that bringing that child back into his life mm-hmm. i think that makes perfect sense it's totally in keeping thematically it's totally in keeping sort of mythologically yeah i like it i am a full jake is onboard child twitter <laughs> conspiracy theory truther now <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh that was a good one thank you john so much for that letter that was a fun one see th- this this is the content that I am here for, folks. Give me all your conspiracies. I love it. I never get tired <laughs> of them. All right. So speaking of conspiracies and me being a nut, um, I posted a question to the Facebook group. Originally, it was for the last episode, but because of my tardiness, we needed to save it for this one. But we got some really fun answers. <laughs> I won't. I'll let you, DJ, decide if you want to be put on the spot on this one or not. But okay. So here is where it came from so originally this like i said it was for the previous episode where we had them walking through the oil field and they again and again saw names of companies like exxon and sicko that we are we recognize as being part of you know our world our level of the tower right Mm -hmm. and so i thought it would be fun sort of as a thought experiment more than anything to to try to think of things that are quote unquote proof of midworld that have bled into our world. So like what are weird and anachronistic things that we see that don't make sense, but if you put them in the context, if they were just from a different level of the tower, specifically midworld, they would make sense. So it's just kind of fun. Just a fun question. So did you come up with anything? I I did actually. Oh, um, okay. What is I, it? I was kind of daydreaming about this and so if you ever go to Washington, D.C. and go to the monument there, um, I forget which one it is, but it's the big tower that the obelisk? hangs over the – Yeah, the obelisk. Yeah. And and then, like, you start thinking about other cities, and there's obelisks everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, Portland has an obelisk. <laughs> Lincoln, the capital, is a giant obelisk. Like, you go to France, and, like, there's obelisks all over uh, – um, uh, uh paris you go to like these greek areas and they've got just like an obelisk out in the middle of a area where the boats land like what the f- what the he- what the hell is that about yeah oh i like it yeah and so like if you if you want to go crazy town it's like well i don't know if those are representations of the tower or if we're really just like egypt crazy <laughs> but man what the heck are all those obelisks about and, and they're like a useless structure too because 
it's not like you can climb up and look out the window or do anything of value with them. They just like stand uh, uh, prostate in front of you and like <laughs> drop a shadow around stuff. So let me piggyback off your conspiracy theory because I love it. So okay. do you remember the night of the mayor's party? There's a, a moment where Susan is off in a separate room after when Cord yelling at her about what are you looking at that boy for? She sees a tapestry that is of Arthur Eld and there's all this Egyptian imagery Ooh. in it. There's like a pyramid in it. So I that actually works because the mythology behind Arthur Eld has Egyptian sort of mixed into it. Oh, that's uh, man! I, I actually knocked it out of the park by accident. Yeah, you so did. There you go. <laughs> nice one. Okay, cool. So my first thing I was gonna say, just like when I was being lazy, was I was like, Ardwolf. Ardwolves are proof of Midworld because they are clearly Billy Bumblers. If you look up an wait, Ardwolf, wait, what what animal? An Ardwolf. I don't know what an Ardwolf is. It's is a Billy a... Bumbler. I'm telling you. Okay, so let me let me show you. Does he look a lot like Jar Jar Binks? <laughs> oh my god! No! <laughs> oh my god! I can't. That has lived rent free in my head ever since the first time you said it. Okay, I'm putting <laughs> it in our chat here. Um, a link to the picture. Um, so that was okay. my first thing, and then my ooh, that's a weird looking guy, right? All right, he's, sure, fair enough. He looks, he looks otherworldly, right? And he's got the that's stripes like and the like. The only thing he doesn't have is the golden eyes, but everything else is a total. It's a Billy Bobbler. Yeah, that's like duckbill platypus level of weird. Yeah, it's so cute. I'm super into it. Okay, so I have another one, but I'll get to it after we I go through the listener ones because it came as a result of something that a listener said. So, okay. okay. Let me pull that up. Okay, so the first person that chimed in was Craig, who said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get super political, but there is a, a certain someone with off-color skin and weird hair that's like a low man in a bad flesh suit. <laughs> i mean where is the lie <laughs> uh the other one he suggested was the bermuda triangle is definitely a thinny mm, maybe i mean think about it like all the planes that go into it and disappear all the eels so... that go there to breed apparently it is a thinny most of the uh legit excuses for planes and boats disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle is actually just off-gassing. Right. So the belief is is that there is actually a source of either natural gas or some other hydrocarbon underneath there. And when the bubble comes up, the density of air changes and causes the plane to basically drop out of the air because it can no longer fly in that, that level of density of air. It's like hitting a rock. Okay. And the same thing with boats. So you put a giant bubble underneath of a boat and it just tips over and, mm. and sinks capsizes because you, you know you basically get a gap underneath you you drop like 10 feet and then the water rushes in around you okay sure if that's what the crimson <laughs> king wants you to believe sheeple <laughs> okay chris chimed in and he said i'm thinking that stonehenge and the other smaller hinges in England are speaking rings from Midworld. The connection to demons and other worlds resulted in druidic rituals of worship being built around them. Hey, I, I agree with that. There's actually a Stonehenge here in um, in Washington. Is there? Yeah, I, no, no idea why, but someone built a full size replica of Stonehenge, what? like over the edge of the gorge, what? and it's just 
out there, like, looks over the river. Oh, see? That's because they're trying to connect with the demons, right? Yep, exactly. Like, you got to have those portals all over the world. You know, in Carhenge in Nebraska, like, same story. Yeah, okay. So he says, uh, I like this because there's evidence that the stones came from very, very far away. So, like, they're not, they weren't even, like, built from a local quarry. They came from somewhere farther away. Or maybe they just came from really really far away and he says uh stonehenge is so otherworldly i was there in 2017 and amazed at how far the stones had come and how little anyone really understood about its purpose a total mid-world mystery yeah i like it yes okay all right and then tim chimed in and he said i would not be surprised at all if black 13 is really under the 9-11 World trades that are wreckage, and that's why it feels like we're in bizarre world now. The wrong timelines crisscross with one another at some point. Ooh. Huh. Ooh, that's dark. Okay, so this is the comment that made me come up with my other one, which is do you remember when President Trump took his very first trip after becoming president? He went to Saudi Arabia, and there were those pictures of him with his hands on that orb. Yeah, I yeah. think that that is one of the wizard's glasses, or I don't know if they're called wizards. I keep calling them one of the, the wizards' one glasses. Of Merlin's, <laughs> one of Merlin's rainbow, right? I think that's one of Merlin's rainbow. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that would that's very interesting, and then that would like roll back into the uh, uh, skin suit business, you know? Yes. Yeah. And then finally, Chris chimed in again, and he said. I would also think it would be fun if the monoliths that are mysteriously appearing are uh doors to mid-world uh-huh uh-huh because they keep appearing and disappearing there's apparently a new one showed up in vegas recently but there was the one in romania there was the one and obviously the one in utah and i feel like there was another one that i'm not remembering but yeah i i sort of like lost the thread of that with the whole like religious group tears it down like people party in its spot and yeah and all the other things and then the memes where it's just wild. like it is a wild time to be alive <laughs> It's just, so it's just like, well, I don't even know what's going on with the monolith anymore. It's just gotten out of control. Right, right. One last one. This one comes from John, who coincidentally was our buddy from the email. He says, this was found in 2017, and he included a picture of an underground, I don't know, they're like posts coming out of the ground, sort of in a circle, and they're covered with under, you know, sea stuff, like barnacles and whatnot. Okay. And it says, researchers have found a rock carving of a mastodon at the underwater Stonehenge of Lake Michigan. So, I guess there's an underwater Stonehenge in Lake Michigan, which is new information for me. And he says, I'm thinking this is a circle ring. Hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think that like all the demons that we've encountered in the book have all been above water. But what if there's some like underwater spooky demon action? No, well, I mean that goes with the uh, Arthur sort of mythology Whoa, of like the lady in the lake shit. and throwing the right. Yes, this is yes. It's probably where he put the sword, yo. Oh, and, I mean, an Excalibur <laughs> is definitely something that gets name checked in the book. Yep, exactly. So that Michigan thing is where they're like he's got Excalibur tucked away. All eyes on you, Michigan, not for the first time. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> awesome. Oh, that was a really fun one. Thank you, everybody that contributed. It's always so fun to see what you guys come up with with these things, and I really appreciate it. And for those of you who have not joined the group already, you should hop on over. We post these every other 
Monday-ish to be read on the show. And we would love to hear from you. If you want to get in touch, you can drop us a line at castofcaw at zombiegirls.com. You can, like I said, join the Facebook group. or And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you're using to enjoy uh, these dulcet tones. I guess that's just leaves where where else can they find you on the internet dj if they need some more of you in their lives because who the hell uh, doesn't i mean there's not a lot of me on the internet these days uh you can swing over to deadliner.com and check out our uh every other week podcast if you want you can find me here and uh occasionally like i will be hanging out on the facebook page uh posting and i believe eventually we'll have like a discord for this or people can find us wandering around this is, is that such a good segue dj Yes. Okay. So um, we're going to go more into detail coming soon. Probably next week we'll, we'll break it all down, but we are very close to rolling out our, our Patreon, which will be happening in January. So stay tuned for more details on that, which yes, will include a discord. So if, if Facebook is not enough, if you want like really direct contact with us, um, we are going to have a discord where Patreons can interact with us directly when pretty much whenever, but that's, just a part of all the exciting stuff we have planned and we'll talk more about that on the next dun, episode. Dun, dun. This is what we call on the biz a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> For the meantime though, if you want more of me, you could find me on the Zombie Girls podcast. We just did our Christmas episode where we covered Better Watch Out and Dead End. Have you seen Dead End? I feel like Dead End would be a movie you would dig, Deej. Uh, I'll write it down and see if I've seen okay, it. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. You can find me on the More Deadly podcast where we review horror films that are directed by women. We, You can find me on the Stream Queens where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet. And yeah, I think that's all of them. <laughs> so plenty <laughs> of opportunities to hear me share my opinions. But yeah, I guess that's it. DJ, take us out. Thanks for listening to another exciting episode, folks. We learned a valuable lesson today, and that is don't cut your hair with a rock. It's dangerous, <laughs> and it can hurt you. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye.